it is finished what was jesus referring to earlier on as he was praying his final prayer in the earshot of his disciples getting ready for the cross in the 17th chapter of john's gospel in verse 4 he says these words i have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do it's exactly the same word as it is finished jesus finished the work that the father had given him it was the work of redemption which was the godward dimension of the work taking care of the wrath of god against the sin of humanity there was an inward dimension the sanctification the making us holy and i'll be talking about that on easter sunday but the one i want to focus on particularly today was his work of destruction the same john writing in one of his letters later on in one john says jesus came to destroy the devil and all his works this is the theme that is actually underlined at the very beginning of scripture in the opening chapters of the bible after god describes for us the creation of the world and the creation of adam and eve our first parents we are taken to the third chapter where the serpent is introduced to us as crafty the first adjective that is used to describe him and deceitful and he tempts adam and eve to use their free will that god gave to them as creatures made in his image to exercise their independence of god to independently define for themselves what is good and what is evil and they give in to that temptation instinctively they know something is wrong they they hide from the presence of god and the early verses of chapter 3 talk about how god flushes adam and eve out of hiding and confronts them with their sin and then when of course eventually the finger points back to the one who got it all started god speaks to satan with these words so the lord god said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers he will crush your head and you will strike his heel i want to focus on that word enmity in the hebrew language in the original it's the first word enmity i will put between you and it is one of the strongest possible words to describe adversarial relationships and there are three levels at which this enmity is spoken of in the scriptures right in the very beginning first of all he said i'm going to put enmity between you and the woman referring of course to satan embodied by the serpent and eve the woman It, that is actually an amazing word of grace <laughs> if i were to paraphrase loosely to get the sense of what god is saying he is saying something like this to the enemy he said so you thought you succeeded <laughs> you thought you succeeded in deceiving eve and adam and bringing them over onto your side against me so that they are now my enemies <laughs> he said no you did not <laughs> in spite of what they have done they are on my side <laughs> you are my enemy and you are their enemy because they are on my side it is actually the gospel in its core essential form right at the moment the first sin is committed by grace god aligns sinners with himself and he said no you and she are on opposite sides the second level moves from individuals to 
groups. He says, I will also put enmity between your seed and her seed. Seed in the Hebrew language is used as a collective noun to represent a body of people as well as individually. Basically in these words, God is saying from now on all of humanity will be fundamentally divided into two parts. The most fundamental division between human beings is not based on language, not based on color, not based on ethnicity, not based on wealth. It is based on whether they belong to the serpent or to Jesus. He says, I will put enmity between two groups of people. Those who line themselves up with the enemy in hostility and independence against God. Whether it's, a very, whether it's a hostility that is cloaked in religion or a hostility that is militant and rebellious. The heart of that hostility is independence of God. And on the other side, the seed of the woman. Those who by faith have lined themselves up with God and the purposes of God. And we see this in the very next chapter in the Bible. Where Cain and Abel, two brothers born of the same woman, Cain kills Abel. <laughs> And John refers to Cain as one who belongs to the devil. And that's the second level of enmity. And then at the third level, which is the one that is of crucial importance, God comes back to the singular. First between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and then he, he, one representative seed of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It goes back again now to Satan. That, that's the you. Who's the he? All we know from this text. He is one individual who will represent in him the entire seed of the woman. And these two will fight an epic battle. And that battle will reach a definitive end where each will inflict a wound upon the other. But the contrast is in the nature of the wound. And God says to the serpent... The wound that you will inflict upon this representative seed will be to strike his heel. (laughs) The wound that he will inflict on you is to crush your head. That much we know from these opening verses of Genesis. It is not until we get to the Gospels that we understand fully who this seed of the woman is. It is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And this battle royal begins from the time of his birth. (laughs) For you might recall as you read the nativity stories. When King Herod who was a puppet king installed by Rome. To pacify the Jewish people in Palestine. When he heard from the men who came from the east. That a king has been born who is king of the Jews. He decided to eliminate this way. And he issued that order to kill all male children born under the age of two years in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Of Bethlehem. But the angels are sent by God and warn Joseph in a dream, and the baby escapes. And he lives to the age of 30. And then, when he begins his public ministry, once again the enemy comes out into the open, and the battle is renewed one more time in the temptations in the wilderness. And if you will look at those three temptations, you will find that in every single one of them, the temptation is exactly the same temptation that was given to Adam and to Eve. Exercise your independence of God. Three things this was said of the the temptation in the Garden of Eden. They saw that the fruit was good to look at, 
good to eat and desirable for gaining wisdom. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride of life. The three temptations of Jesus were exactly the same. The lust of the flesh, turn it into bread. The lust of the eye, I show you all the kingdoms. The pride of life, you're the son of God. Jump on from the temple, he'll save you. He lost that battle too. And then all Luke says is, he left him for an opportune moment. That opportune moment came in Gethsemane again. When all the fury was held, was unleashed in, in, in the foretaste of the cup. And the taste was so horrible, he said, Father, please take it away from me. If there is any way possible for me to not drink this cup. Then the angels came to strengthen him and he continued the battle. And finally he won again. Having tasted the cup, he said, I will drink it down to the last drop. And then the fury of the battle intensified in that last week that you and I call Passion Week. Right at the beginning as he set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem, Satan appeared once again. This time in the form of a beloved disciple Peter who said, no, never Lord, this will not happen to you. And Jesus said, to, and he didn't mince any words, he said, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. It was still that same temptation. Do it some other way, don't do it God's way. Then the betrayal by Judas. Then the mock trial before Pilate. Then the merciless whipping by Roman soldiers. Then the mockery by the Roman soldiers. The crown of thorns upon his head. And then finally the crucifixion. The serpent had struck the heel. What he didn't know. What he didn't know was at that moment he crushed his own head. Do you know that the crucifixion is the suicide of Satan? That is the madness of sin. In egging the fury, in entering into Judas. In egging on the fury of Rome's soldiers. He was hastening his own destruction. He just didn't know it. The wound on the heel turned out to be the wound that crushed the head of the serpent. That's why we worship. This is mystery. This is awesome. This is spectacular. All those words that we use for ball games and TVs and houses. Only one thing deserves that. This. You will wound his heel and he will crush your head. The same thing. It's not over yet. It is left to the Apostle Paul to give us the final description of what it means for you and me today. So in, in, in Colossians, Paul writes these words. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Every phrase in that, just go back one slide please. Every phrase in that, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us. Any one of you who's ever had a traffic ticket or any other kind of summons, knows that piece of paper 
If you ever bother to read it, most of us look at the amount and then that's the end of it. And the date. If you ever bother to read it, on such and such a day, office of such and such a date, section such and such and such of such and such and such a code. That's what it means. There's a written code against us. It's an I owe you, you owe the government so much. That's the idea behind these verses. Every single human being has an IOU with his name or her name on it. And there is a written code against it. You know what that code is? It's the Ten Commandments. It's all of the law of God. And it is against us. There's a heavenly IOU against every single one of us and not one of us is able to pay. I, I, you and I have been able to pay, hopefully, the tickets that were given to us. But this one you cannot pay. What do you do? Not only was there a written code, it was against us and opposed to us. Sometimes the cops who give you tickets are decent cops. They smile at you. Even in the court, they are gentle and kind. But the one time I got a ticket four years ago and decided to go and challenge it for various reasons, uh, the man who gave me the ticket was not a particularly nice man. He was hostile. He was angry. Any question that I asked him, he snapped back at me. So that wasn't just an IOU against me. It was opposed to me and hostile to me. That's what he says here. The written code was against you and stood opposed to you. There is a screaming mob of principalities and powers, if you will, in this heavenly courtroom that are waving their IOUs and say, guilty, guilty, guilty. Now just imagine... Just imagine what would happen, what would have happened to me in that courtroom. If at that moment from out of nowhere somebody appeared, plucked that IOU from the hand of the cop and said, this is blank. There's nothing against this. There are no charges against this man. I would love to have seen the expression on his face, wouldn't you? (laughs) That's what happened. It didn't happen in the courtroom with me, unfortunately. But this is what happened in the one courtroom where it matters more than anything else. It said, he took it away. And the word in the original language, he just blotted it clean. And he nailed it to the cross. And so the charge sheet against us is completely clean. He goes on to say one more thing in the next verse. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There is only one other place in the New Testament where that word uh, public spectacle is used. It is when Joseph found Mary was pregnant and thought at that time that she was guilty of adultery. And not wanting to disgrace her in public, he, put her, he wanted to put her aside quietly. That word means to, to show publicly how terrible somebody is. To, show, to make them look bad. <laughs> and he says, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He made the principalities and the powers look bad. <laughs> if you want to go back to my little simple analogy, it would sort of be like the charge sheet being clean and then the judge taking a look at it and giving the policeman a dressing down and saying, what kind of a cop do you think you are? Can't you even issue a ticket properly? And you're wasting my time. Could you imagine the public shame, how bad he would look? That's what it says happened on the cross. Not only was the charge sheet wiped clean, Satan and the principal and the powers were made to look bad, powerless and useless. 
Uh, and look at the irony here again, folks. He said he made a public spectacle. Who's a public spectacle on the cross? Most of us would think it was Jesus. Stripped naked. Subject to all kinds of mockery. Now paraded before people, they're all wagging their tail, tongues at him saying, Ha! You were supposed to save others, you can't even save yourself. So you are the son of God. Come down from the cross and we'll believe you. It would look from visible reality that the one who is being made a public spectacle of is Jesus. Paul tells us behind the scenes, invisible reality, exactly the opposite was happening. The entire horde of demonic beings was being made a public spectacle of. While Jesus was triumphing with a triumph that they had no idea of at all. See, this is just another dimension of you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. You think you're making a public spectacle of Jesus? Your entire fate and all your demonic hordes are being made a public spectacle of permanently. You have no power over the people of God from now on. Nothing to accuse them and no power to harass them. No wonder the New Testament on this battle closes with these words. Romans 16, 20, Paul says, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The promise that was given to Jesus in Genesis 3.15 is now given to the church. But he's he's a mortally wounded enemy, but he's not dead yet. And some of us know how wounded animals fight. We know how wounded soldiers who are mortally wounded fight and often kill a lot more in those last little while before they finally die. Let us not make the mistake of thinking that because we have a mortally wounded enemy that there is no battle. And so as we live on this side of the cross, on this side of the finished work of Jesus, may I remind you that life is war. We do have an enemy. But we don't have to be afraid. Don't run from him. Put on the weapons we talked about last week and face this defeated foe for what he is. The charge sheet against you is wiped clean. He has been made a public spectacle of. He's mortally wounded. And one day he will be crushed completely under our feet. And we can get started on that job right now. In every dimension of our life. Fight for your marriages. Fight for your children. Fight for the welfare of this church. Fight for the mission of Jesus Christ in the world. Enter into the finished work of Jesus. But for some of you here, who might still be on the other side of that enmity, you are still part of the seed of the serpent. There is only one way you will ever win this victory. And that is by putting down your weapons and surrendering to Jesus. I want to bless you with the conviction that you are on the winning side. (laughs) That you are fighting not a battle to be won. But there is a battle that has already been won for you and for me to fight. I bless you with courage where you might have known fear, hope where you might have known despair, strength where you might have been put off by your weakness, 
perseverance where you might have been put off by your fatigue in this battle. May God direct you into his love and into the perseverance of Jesus Christ who ran with patience that race that was marked out for him. May you run with patience the race that is marked out for you looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of that faith who for the joy that was set before him despised the cross and endured the shame. Go in Jesus' name.